city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. Recently in Virginia Beach, Virginia, a disgruntled city engineer entered the city's municipal building armed with a silenced 45 caliber semi-automatic pistol and a second 45 as backup. He climbed to the second floor and began indiscriminately shooting his fellow co-workers and visitors. Within less than two minutes, he had systematically killed 12 and wounded four. A rapid entry team comprised of two officers, two detectives, two supervisors, and two canine handlers with their dogs quickly responded from the police department that was only two blocks away. The officers breached entry into the building and quickly engaged the shooter on the second floor in which could be best described as a prolonged 10-minute in-your-face running gun battle that was initially fought in the close quarters of the building's corridors. The shooter was mortally wounded as he retreated into a nearby office and his murderous threat had ended. But not before one of the entry officers was wounded, but saved by his body armor. Every year, millions of American workers report having been victims of workplace violence. And in 2017 alone, workplace violent assaults resulted in over 18,400 injuries, and 458 fatalities. The National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, better known as OSHA, documents that workplace violence is the fourth leading cause of workplace deaths in America, and it's also the second cause of all corporate deaths. And I can think of nobody better than one of our forensic colleagues and forensic death investigation team members Mark Kasich, who is a forensic investigator. He's a certified financial crimes investigator with a national footprint, and he's a former police detective. So, Mark, welcome to A Thread of Evidence, and let's unpack this serious national problem. Yes, sir. Thanks, Dr. Ron. I'm honored to be on your program again, and let's get to this. So, Mark, tell me a little bit about you know, the scope of the problem. Let me just introduce this in saying that, you know, with respect to workplace violence, hundreds have been murdered in the United States since the uh, the, the 20, uh, August 20th, 1986 uh, post office violence incident, which actually created, unfortunately, the saying going postal. And so hundreds have been murdered and thousands have been wounded and tens of thousands of people have been affected by the loss of a loved one, uh, a valued friend, or a co-worker. And actually, and we might have a discussion about this as well, Mark, but I actually look at the school shootings as being related to workplace violence. So I thought maybe we could talk about the scope of this problem together. Absolutely. You know, Dr. Ron, you, you bring up a really great point because we're talking about occupational uh, 
workplace violence, where it could be third parties coming in doing harm and violence and, and murder to uh, employees within a firm. It could be other customers. It could be customers against customers, but also employees of firms murdering fellow colleagues within the firm like you just just uh, discussed about Virginia Beach. Uh, just a phenomenal situation about physical violence, harassment, and intimidation at the work site, no matter who is doing it, to get involved in potential violence here. Some of the cases uh, that we have seen nationally uh, and uh, let's talk about, you know, whether there are copycat crimes and, and things right. of that and how that affects, how does that affect us as, uh, as bosses? Uh, because, you know, you're, you're an owner of your company, I'm an owner in my company. And how does that affect us uh, with respect to employees and employee profiles? And how does it affect major corporations? Is municipal government different than corporate? Uh, establishments, you know, are schools part of workplace violence? Let's talk about those issues. Throughout the issue of going postal or the 1986 beginnings of documentation of these type of murders inside our workplaces, this happened to be the U.S. Postal uh, in Edmond, Oklahoma, going forward here with uh, identifying what in the world are we talking about here? Because it seems like, Dr. Ron, it only gets addressed after a major incident takes place. Like we're talking about 2018 in Los Angeles, where some crazy person out there, and I'll just call him crazy, I'm not a clinician by the way, someone goes in there and just starts shooting people in a nightclub. I mean, and, and hundreds of people are injured, and I don't know, about 50 of them were murdered, all kinds of things going on in that regard. So the Department of Justice has started to profile these issues on going forward. And I think it's important that we discuss just initially here in our, in our conversation, Dr. Ron, in identifying what, is, what are some of the characteristics of a lethal employee. These are some of the keys to what we need to pay, pay closer attention to in what businesses and firms, large or small, public or private, it really doesn't matter. Any of this can happen at any time with any of these types of firms. So going forward, for example, the characteristics. I thought the FBI brought out some really sharp information. And of course, we're not clinicians. I'm not a psychologist. But being former police officers, Dr. Ron, we have an insight on what's going on in a person's mind from time to time. And when we're working in a place, you know, we might spend 10 to 12 hours a day with a particular individual. We get to know individuals really good about their habits, what they feel about certain things. Maybe even a political view comes out, God forbid, we don't want to talk about politics, but those types of feelings and emotions and what's going on in their family. Do they have a drug problem? Do they have an alcohol problem? So some of the characteristics that I uncovered here in my reviews and assessments in the corporate sector have identified these types of characteristics. And I think it's really important and very interesting to go through these for a second. So in regards to disgruntled attitudes, you mentioned that disgruntled attitude uh, with the Virginia Beach shooting. Uh, any perceived injustices in the workplace, it's, it's like, hey, it's we against them, everybody. You stand up with me. Those managers over there are about to you know, do us in, or whatever those cases might be. They may even possess a low self-esteem and they like military. This is a characteristic, uh, especially with uh, the particular 
person who was from the National Guard in Virginia Beach. He lived by himself. He was a loner, 40 years of age. So we're going through some of the profiles and characteristics. And going forward, they like weapons. They use weapons. And they have issues with anger management. And unfortunately, there could be instability in their family. Going forward, we understand who are these people. Well, you know, Mark, I want to add something that I found uh, very interesting as a police detective. And, of course, I do a tremendous amount of actor shooting, active uh, shooter uh, training uh, with our with our division called Response to Active Shooter dot com. But what I found interesting in this particular case is and we don't have all the evidence in, but it's already come out that uh, he used a pistol, but it was a silenced pistol so he had a suppressor on that weapon and i think that's important because to me as a tactician first of all when and i've done more than my share of entries (laughs) and i will tell you that you can't tell where the gunfire is coming from when you're inside of a building you really can't tell when you're part of the the entry team and you hear gunfire going on in there you really can't isolate at first the source of that gunfire and that's as a police officer but as a person being inside of a building there's so many echoes and bouncing off of things mm-hmm. that you really can't tell where the shooter is so what you're doing is you're listening but you're watching people and see are they running toward something or running away from something but this gives a person with a suppressor an opportunity to shoot and kill numerous people before those people have really identified the location of the shooter. And that includes law enforcement when the tactical team breaches through the doors and goes out to seek, locate, and neutralize the threat. And you know what you're saying, Dr. Ron, the suppressor, there was a mental state with this individual. He knew exactly what he wanted to do. And he was right into it because he didn't want to be found very quickly because he wanted to take out as many people as he possibly could. And unfortunately, he did. And, and that's correct. And, and you know what? what's important for people to understand is that when we're involved in active shooters, there's certain things that people need to remember. Number one, they take no hostages. That's not their objective. Number two, they right. make no demands. Number three, they're not interested in escaping. And number four, they're not interested in negotiating. So that's where the paradigm completely changed going all the way back to the Columbine high school shootings up in Colorado. If you remember, and and us as detectives, you know, we were both trained uh, in the old theory of isolate, contain, call in the SWAT team, and negotiate. Because that's, in those days, that's where people were interested in doing, taking hostages, negotiating, making demands. But active shooters are so far away from that paradigm that what it's done is created a whole new uh, methodology of uh, of capture and neutralizing. You know, we're not we're not really interested in capturing. If that happens, that's fine. But we're more interested in breaching entry and neutralizing the threat before they can kill or injure more people. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know what we've been seeing out here with these types of lethal employees that they've been now defined as. 
there is no holds barred, and they know they're not going to be leaving alive, most likely, at the end of their catastrophic events that they're putting forward with people. And, you know, it can happen in any walk of life, Dr. Ron. You know, it doesn't matter. A person in a factory in Aurora, Illinois, is going in there. He loses his job. And all of a sudden, he's coming back in with his guns, and he's taking people out in, in that big warehouse, and they had to get dogs and everything else going forward. There's instantaneous active shooter groups now within police departments that go right in. They don't have any holds barred with them as well because they know there's so many lives at stake. You know, that that's, that's true. And this particular case... Uh, and just briefly, because, you know, obviously the, the investigation is still ongoing. It'll be ongoing for quite some time. Uh, and they haven't right. released very much information. But the information that they have released so far is very telling. So he didn't have one mm -hmm. pistol. They found uh, several weapons. They're not telling us what kind of weapons, but they found several more weapons inside the workplace that he had concealed. And also when they did the search warrant of his house, they found, you know, more weapons. And... So this man had a premeditated idea to get inside, and he used his access, you know, his uh, access key code, his FOB, uh, because he was an employee. He was an engineer for the municipality, so he could come in. And so, of course, the municipality has security to protect from people that are outsiders, but they didn't have any protection from people who was an insider. And then he had planted weapons. I believe strategically in certain locations so that he could rearm himself rapidly or go to bigger weapons upon the arrival of police. The, the good thing about this case is from what we understand is the entry team uh, got in so quickly and in, located him right. and engaged him so quickly he wasn't able to uh, get his plan, his full plan of fighting them off uh, engaged before they were able to shoot and kill him. Absolutely, and, and thank God for bulletproof vests that saved that officer's life exactly. as well. And then they took that they took that guy down, and that was the end of him. So, yes, it, it, it is tough when you're talking about everyone goes to work each day wanting to return in the same condition. Hopefully, that you know before they le left home and came to work and go back home. But these 12 people will never be able to do that again. And that's so unfortunate and so sad. And our hearts go out to the folks in Virginia Beach. But trying to think about what's going on with folks. I mean, why are they taking it so much to the nth degree? And is this anything different from 1986 and in the 1990s and then going forward from there? Dr. Ron, I don't believe it is that much different. We're just hearing so much more, so much current information in regards to what is going on as soon as it takes place. So the news is out there, everything is going on at that point. Well, you know, Mark, I've, I've written extensively about what I refer to as ticking time bombs in the United States. And right. of course, a, a great deal mm -hmm. of uh, my caseload uh, deals with people with mental health issues. And we have these ticking time bombs all over in every city, in every town, in the United States, and you never know what's going to set them off, but the important thing to remember is every single day, every person that you meet is battling some sort of problem, some sort of demon, and everybody yes. grows up differently. They have a different experiential portfolio. They have different coping skills, uh, including no coping skills, 
and some are able to de-escalate. Other people have, as you indicated, Mark, tremendous problems with yeah. anger management. And when you light that fuse, and you never know when that fuse is going to get lit, the straw that breaks the camel back, once that fuse is lit, there is literally nothing that anybody's going to be able to do to keep that bomb from exploding. Absolutely. And, and you know, Dr. Ron, um, you know, if we could save one life in broadcasting this information to folks on your great program, Threat of Evidence, um, we've, I think we've done our duty. I, you know, the key here is what we're going to be talking about, and I have some really good information coming forward in, in upcoming segments of the show, is to talk about issues of what can be done. I mean, what can uh, a refreshment take place? Let's reinvigorate the workplace violence policies within corporations, within smaller workplaces, within law enforcement agencies even, or even other governmental agencies. Uh, let's talk about those things. Let's get that stuff out in front, and let's talk about some newer ideas that I just recently uh, uncovered in, in an investigation that I was doing with the EEOC and some information, some recommendations that they have because they have documentation, they have statistics now that it's so important and they're able to get some really good information out to the folks. Well, that's fantastic. You know, I'm just going to take just a little bit of time to talk about a personal case and it's one that I'm involved in right now, so I have to be intentionally vague. Uh, but I think our, our listeners and our team members are going to get the idea what I'm talking about. You don't always have to be a person that uh, has got the profile mark that you're talking about, which is one that's more of a behavioral instability. They're disgruntled. Uh, mm -hmm. they, they hold grudges. They, they handle criticism poorly, you know, socially isolated, all these low self-esteem. I've actually got a case where I've got a client that came to me because they were so frustrated, and this deals with not a municipality, but a uh, another public entity. And this person had been a, uh, and still is, a very valued employee, uh, just a couple of years short of retirement, and they had something catastrophic happened to them in the workplace by the way this person was is very centered a very kind uh, person everybody loves this person a stellar employee not a single blemish uh, in the workplace uh, in you know for 18 years and I will just say succinctly that the school district did something with this person that was just as negligent and as thoughtless uh, and and senseless as it could possibly be and it has taken this person who is a very very normal balanced kind and considerate person and really changed their mindset about the workplace not a violent mindset whatsoever because this person is so centered but this person now is depressed where they were never depressed they're always a very happy-go-lucky person and their work uh, even though they continue to put out a decent work product they're not going over and above before and they are they are very paranoid now about everything that is happening to them in the workplace it seems now that the prism of how they look at everything moving forward is one of what are they thinking about me now and and uh, you know what does this mean what does that mean a police car pulls up in front of the school or wherever and they're saying oh my god uh is this for me or that and and by the way this person 
is a completely innocent person. There was an investigation of over something that was absolutely specious. They were completely cleared, unfounded. But the way that they were treated by the school and people that my client thought were their friends and colleagues and working companions has totally changed. So my point is, as we you know, close out this segment, is that it's not always the unstable people. Sometimes you can do psychologically and emotionally traumatic things and harmful things to normal people that forever changes their mindset and the way that they that they look at things and operate within the workplace and if you can do that over a relatively short time with a wonderful decent very centered person you can do that over a very short period of time just imagine what negligence and uncaring and bad leadership can do with a person with behavioral problems over a period of of years before that person snaps and then walks into the workplace or a school because again I believe school violence is workplace violence and all of a sudden you have multiple fatalities and injuries. You're listening to forensic criminologist Dr. Ron Martinelli and my special guest today a certified forensic investigator, Mark Kasich, on a threat of evidence on America Out Loud. Let the silent voices be heard. It's the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.com For a wide spectrum of programming from world and political news, societal and cultural stories, law enforcement, our military heroes, and much more. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. So Mark, tell me, who is at risk of workplace violence? Yeah, Dr. Ron, uh, American workers being victimized at their workplace. Many of these cases, by the way, unfortunately go unreported. And we'll talk about that a little bit further down in, in our next segment. But I think the everyone needs to know, all the folks need to know, who's at risk? Who's at mostly at risk? Uh, such factors as businesses that exchange money with the public, working with volatile or unstable people during that time frame, uh, working alone or in isolated areas may also contribute to potential violence violence. Providing services, care, working where alcohol is served may also impact the likelihood of violent activity. And additionally, the time of day and location of the workplace, such as working late at night or in areas with high crime activity. Also, risk factors that should be considered when addressing issues dealing with workplace violence. So higher risk workers exchange the money with the public, deliver uh, goods to people, health care professionals. And by the way, I'm going to stop there just for a second and just kind of focus on health care. The Department of um, U.S. Labor Department uh, indicated that 70% of victimization takes place in a health care organization. And my colleagues dealing in security departments within large hospitals, other healthcare facilities, no matter what it is, they really have 
ramped up their services to almost like creating law enforcement agencies within the hospitals themselves. And it's all about the training of the personnel. That's a strong key that I also want to focus on in our next segment. But talking about the risk factors in regards to issues of concern, um, folk that are, folks that are involved with the public service, getting involved with people, keeping in mind remote workers, y'all have it kind of great right now because you don't deal with people in person unless you go in for an in-person and live meeting. So these are many times, you know, folks are working in establishments. There's a lot of people within a facility. Like you go into any downtown urban environment, whether you're in Sacramento, Chicago, Dallas, Houston, Boston, New York City, Miami, Florida, you're going to have just millions of people in the areas at any given time. And keeping in mind, to your point in the last segment, you know, the, the person may not be all that mentally unstable, but he or she may become soured. They may be a trigger that, that just points this out, that they're having a bad day and look what just happened. I'm being now asked a few questions here. I have to answer them. Of course, I'm always going to be truthful. But then going forward, what triggers that person? So who's in front of them now? Anyone at any time can be victimized. But there are very succinct procedures and policies that need to be refreshed and reinvigorated in businesses, public and private, in regards to kind of preventing this activity. To have, you know, not just say, see something, say something. We've got some other great information coming up as well. Well, you know, let me ask you this question, because in some of the workplace violence cases that I've had to, you know, post-investigate and, and analyze, I find a, a disconnect between supervisors and line staff, where the line staff uh, and the supervisor do not have good lines of communication, and that precipitates a lot of the stressors that people that act out and do workplace violence uh, experience. So uh, I guess a question to you, I've got a couple of them, but the first question is, does the new millennial culture of using text messages and emails as a form of communication in place of direct you know, sit down, let's have a cup of coffee, come on into my office, let's talk about this issue or that issue. Does that have something to do with the increase in the stressors that create the workplace violence incidents that you take a look at? You know, it could, Dr. Ron, but I'll then preface my statement in regards to this. Who are we promoting as supervisors and managers and vice presidents and directors to lead people in our organizations? What training have they got? Um, we have to go with the text messages. There's just no doubt about it. Instagram, uh, whatever media that's out there, even Facebook for firms that use us now as their home page almost in some of the smaller uh, businesses that we see and work with. So the key is we can work with anybody who wants to text and email, but at the end of the day, the key factor, I believe, in leadership within any type of function of a business is to get that one-on-one -on -one meeting in person and talking with the people. I think, as you mentioned, the millennial folks, uh, baby boomers, anybody out there, they want to do the, the best job and the right job as possible. They want to keep their job, number one, but they want to also 
uh, increase and enhance their career paths. So they want to talk. If, if their supervisor might be just, you know, want to talk and, and get in front and see what's going on, that's a good thing. And I've seen that happen where I've had some younger folks and ex more ex inexperienced investigators that have worked for me. And I said, come on, we got to just talk about this. Mark, you know, I'm busy. I'm, I, you, you can send me a text, you know, uh, John, let's go right now. Uh, you clear your desk, clear your queue, and I'm going to clear my work, and we're going to sit down for 15 minutes and just, just see what's going on in our worlds here and, you know, how we can better communicate. I that's, think that's yeah. the tone at the top. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you know, because that's my follow-up question. You're going right into it. And, and so my question to you, and I, I think you've got a great grasp of it, uh, is is how important is good yeah. leadership in reducing these incidents of stress and workplace violence? Well, there it is. The supervisor, the manager being open to communicate not just worry about how many widgets can be produced that day Correct. and we're meeting our goal and at the end of the month we're going to get our bonus okay that's all well and good that's fantastic in production but also the human side of the world where we do honor our employees and we take care of them according to the core values that have been established within the firm sometimes we get too busy and forget about those dr ron and we need to come back to those and make sure that number one is the employee they are the most important person in front of us that we're leading at the time and then next is the customer of course but if that employee is not functioning well and is all you know it got those perceptions of my manager doesn't like me because he won't even he looked at me crossways and I, I don't understand that when you can sit down together because we spend about 8 to 12 hours a day with people that report to us like report to you, report to me, Dr. Ron. And I'll tell you, if we're not open and transparent and say, my office cube, if I'm in a cube, I have an open door policy, let's go and talk. You know, and I want to bring up one, one point, a, a case in point, a real live situation that really kind of hit my heart. Can I bring that up for sure, a couple minutes? please do. Okay, so dig this. So um, I'm leading a department and uh, we've had some transitions within a department, and um, uh, this particular individual does no longer report to me, but he reports up around the block through maybe a dotted line to me. And so all of the information that I have you know, brought out to my staffs over the years, and this happened to be at least five years that, that I've known this person, um, he took me aside one day and said, Mark, I need to talk to you. And I said, Okay, John, uh, absolutely. I'm always here to, to talk with you if you need to talk to, to me. He says, yeah, we, we, don't, we can't talk about it here. And he took me in a stairway. And I said, hey, John, why don't we just go into a one-on-one you know, -on -one room? And, and so we went down to a couple other floors from, from our floor where we were assigned to. And he took me aside. He says, Mark, I got to tell you something. And I know you'll listen to me because you've always listened to me, and I, I, I really respect everything that you've done. I said, please don't, 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 you know, polish me up that much because you know we're only as good as our next day that we're going to be here, and I want to make sure I'm, <laughs> I'm fulfilling your goals too, right? So he says, you know, Mark, I think I'm uh, being victimized here. 
uh, and I'm not getting equal opportunity to be promoted to the next level in my grade here as an investigator. And so I just I let him talk about it, all the issues of his concern and what uh, he has done to lift himself up with skill sets and have been so involved with the department and offering his expertise to help others and bringing out information and putting out points of training to staff. And I said, John, I've seen all that. And I'll tell you one thing. I really appreciate you coming to me, but I want you to make sure that any type of complaint or anything that goes forward from you, that you're following that HR code that has been established. It's there for you, it's there for me, it's there for all of our leadership and colleagues within our organization. And he said, Mark, that's a very good point. You know, you kind of walked me off the ledge a little bit here because I'm not feeling good about what's happened. I said, well, this will get worked out and I assure you that it will. And I said, point blank, transparency is number one, by the way, Dr. Ron. I said, I have to go to the director and let him know about our conversation. Now, this is going to be confidential, and I will make sure that I open this conversation with our director, that this is a a confidential conversation. This information is coming from John to me, and I have to let you know about this because it's my responsibility to let my senior management know about this. So as you're talking about leadership and transparency and methods of communication and going forward, that's the strongest key to be one of the preventative aspects here of workplace violence. Well, what happens when HR doesn't do their job? So what happens when leadership doesn't do their job? By the way, the resolution with your colleague is absolutely accurate and appropriate that's exactly the way it should be happening in a perfect world but what about the employee that's dealing with the imperfect world and they're dealing with uh people that are violating policy and in a leadership capacity and they're violating hr you know when the employee feels that they have no recourse and maybe they feel because they they tend to be you know, sort of isolated in and of themselves. They can't see, you know, the the forest through the trees because it's a very emotionally traumatic uh, circumstance they find themselves in. How do those people uh, get recognized? Because a lot of times they won't go to someone that they have trust in, like yourself, and, you know, give you some insight into how they're feeling. What happens in cases like that? Yeah, that's that's really the... It's more of a rhetorical side, you know what I mean? It sure is. You know, Dr. Run, what you're going to see sometimes, uh, you're going to hear crickets because that person, much like the the description you had in your scenario in the first segment, uh, sours that individual. They're going, no one's going to listen to me. No one cares about me. They just want to produce their widgets. I'm going to produce my widgets, but I'm going to take care of myself. Now, what happens Uh, when the individual says, you know, I'm at my wits end here, and what happens next? Do they start sabotaging, you know, the enterprise? Do they start deleting files, you know, that get lost off the platform? Do they do they mess up with programming if they're involved right. with coding of a particular system? Right. Do they do certain things like that? Uh, do they see retaliation going on? Um, do they talk amongst themselves in the corridors where now management and leadership, they're like, 
just a parcel out there and they're meaningless at that point. So that's way that's what really happens in regards to uh, the code that the tone at the top gets deflected to really going sideways and kind of zigzag and it's way out of transition at that point. It's not working well, it won't work well, and we're lucky if we can get in there and get some great consultation uh, people like maybe you or me to go in there and say let's address this situation and here's some assessments that we need to do. We can talk about that going forward in another segment as well. Sure. You know, how important is the stability and support of the family uh, with respect to how people internalize or externalize their frustrations? Yeah, I, I think we sometimes we, we, and I've been like that as well, wearing your heart on your sleeve every so often, bringing your, work, your home life into the workplace. And, uh, you know, there might be some stressors out there, whether it might be with a spouse, with a, a senior parent out there or, or some other health issues with a with a brother or sister, sibling or another family matter. It will affect the employee at their job. So my goal here has been and I always I don't want to say always, but just as almost always has been when I see something that's different. Now, you and I are forensic interviewers, Dr. Ron, and we can see changes in behavior, you know, and, 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 and not even asking a question. I can tell, as I would say, hey, uh, hey, Jerry, I, let, let's go talk. Let's go get a cup of coffee, you and I. When I see something kind of weird with one of my directs, uh, you know, I want to make sure that they're doing okay that day. Um, and a lot of times, you know, we see that coming forward. I'm having trouble at home. I'm getting home too late. Uh, you know, how can the leadership within an organization say, how can we work with that employee? Can we give them maybe a remote day? Can we give them a little bit different work hours if he's scheduled from eight to four? Can we get him from maybe six to six to three or whatever it might be uh, to get that a better um balance in their life so that's a strong piece it can affect them and if senior management number one doesn't see it and number two cannot offer a solution and number three doesn't even listen to that particular employee we're going to hear crickets and unfortunately i think this could contribute to an escalated issue. Well, you are listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist, and my special guest today, forensic investigator Mark Kasich. And we've been talking about occupational workplace violence and some of the issues and prevention recommendations. And you'll get some of those when we come right back on a thread of evidence on America Out Loud. I'm Dr. Ron Martinelli. And I'm Linda Martinelli. As former law enforcement officers, we know that your life and the lives of those you love and work with can change in an instant when you encounter an active shooter. Unfortunately, in today's world of uncertainty, encountering an armed active shooter can have deadly consequences. That's why the key to survival is training and preparedness. And that's why we want to invite our listeners to seriously consider taking our Response to Active Shooter training course. Violence can happen to you anytime and anywhere and when you least expect it. Having a response and survival plan and engaging it can be the difference between life and death for you or a family member. 
Our response to active shooter courses are customized for the corporate, school, church, restaurant, and small business environment at a reasonable budget that fits your needs. So don't put this life-saving training off because you don't think it will ever happen to you. We call those people victims. Our response to active shooter instructors are all nationally renowned tactical law enforcement experts who will guide you through the life-saving protocols you'll need to survive an active shooter event. So be a victor, not a victim. Go to responsetoactiveshooter.com to learn more today. Remember, that's all one word, responsetoactiveshooter.com, and be safe out there. So Mark, tell me something. Are the uh, issues that precipitate incidents of school violence, are those issues somewhat similar uh, in nature to those that precipitate regular workplace violence? Absolutely, Dr. Ron. If you look at some of the events that have taken place, Columbine, Sandy Hook, um, a lot of the profiling with the subjects involved, the perpetrators had that same profile in regards to that disgruntlement, being alone, uh, not feeling good about themselves, uh, coming right into a secure area. And God forbid, you know, our school children out there, our high school students out there, our young adults being victimized like this. I mean, it's all about the same type of activity we're dealing with people who are unstable and unfortunately they have weapons in their hands and that's a big problem going forward you know one of the cases that I have is the one that is outside of Sandy Hook I think in Columbine the one that is most often mentioned Mm -hmm. is our relatively recent case of the Parkland school shooting at Marjorie Steinem High School down yes. in Florida with uh, Nicholas Cruz as uh, the gunman who was uh, captured alive, which is really somewhat out of the ordinary because over 40% of all active shooters are either killed by police or they go out by suicide by cop. Uh, but Cruz was a textbook example of a very uh, behaviorally troubled uh, student who had had you know, contacts with law enforcement and, you know, school issues on 34 prior occasions where really nobody did anything to try to monitor and mitigate uh, the serious uh, mental health and behavioral problems that, uh, that this young man had, which culminated in him, you know, killing, I think, at least 16 of his classmates and wounding, you know, at least a score of others. So, uh, Absolutely. I guess my follow-up question is, you know, what can we do? Because I know we've got listeners that own businesses or work in businesses, have some sort of leadership or supervisorial capacity. So what do you think that we can do to add more to the prevention model in workplace violence? Absolutely. And I think the best plan laid is gonna really get it together. And I've seen this in in my personal assessments in my work, and OSHA, our federal agency, believes that a well-written, implemented workplace violence prevention program, along with controls, administrative controls, uh, training to um, associates and employees uh, to, to reduce these incidences of any type of violent activity, a set of procedures, but you know, Procedures are only as good 
if they're practiced and they're applied. And that's one of the biggest messages I think I want to bring out the theme of today's program, Dr. Ron, is we have all these things written. Oh, there's voluminous material out there that people can read. And there's in a handbook, there's a policy, there's, there's PDFs galore. But what's the tone at the top in the smallest organization to the most biggest organization across the United States or the world? What are they doing to get involved? What are they, what are they saying to their people? How are they honoring them when they do provide information that could save thousands of lives within an organization, say, or, or prevent a loss to the organization, whatever it might be. I, I think that is a strong, strong key to have that program in place along with a training program. So, you know what I want to bring up a concept here when you always hear about zero tolerance? Have you heard about that? The zero tolerance policy within a Organization? Well, I've heard of zero tolerance policies with respect to a number of things. For instance, I do so uh -huh. much work within school districts that it's a zero policy for drugs or zero tolerance mm -hmm. policy for weapons. But what exactly are you referring to occupationally? Yeah, well, well think about this. In my assessments, I've absolutely, I'm a proponent of this new, newer, I'll say newer thoughts on what zero policy really is, on zero tolerance. We don't want legal activity. We don't want loss of assets. We don't want loss of life. But think of it like this. Um, it's in regards to changing that mentality, uh, especially when we're talking about violence, fraud, safety, or harassment. So the Equal uh, Opportunity Employment Commission came forward and they've cautioned using zero tolerance may not be the best way to lead organizations because I have seen this in my in personal experiences where employees say you know if you're gonna impose the same discipline if I didn't report anything and I, I knew about something, I'm going to be terminated about this. I'm not going to say a word. I'm just going to go forward and just say, that's your job, Mr. Manager or Ms. Manager. Uh, you have to come up with this information. I'm not even going to offer anything because I'm going to feel something that I'm going to lose my job in regards to this activity. So out of sight, out of mind, don't ask, don't tell. That's the way I've seen the evolution take place. Uh, wh what I've seen about retaliation, um, employees, um, of course, it's, it's, it's a given throughout any organization. Retaliation is against all codes, absolutely, no doubt about it. But when a bit of information is brought up, employees have felt threatened, and by the way, other than the sexual discrimination that is currently going on, like the hashtag MeToo movement, right. retaliation is like light years ahead of that particular first issue I just mentioned. They say, I don't want to be retaliated against because, you know, I don't want to put myself out there. Let them, the management and, and senior leaders, do what they need to do. Um, but I feel I'm going to be retaliated against. And what happens if I say my supervisor is violating, let's say, um, expense reports? What's going to happen then to me? 
am I going to be depicted by, you know, if, if they come up and the supervisor is kept on, on the position that he's currently in, they're going to come back to me. They know it was me. Uh, so there are other aspects that we can talk about in regards to encouraging the re and rewarding uh, employees for speaking up in the workplace. Well, you know, when we do our response to active shooter training, you know, we encourage all of our participants uh, to, if you see something, say something. We don't handle that education with them any differently than we handle uh, our anti-terrorism uh, training. You know, when you're out there, you know, if you see something, you got to say something. It's the same thing in the workplace. And as you said, Mark, creating a positive environment uh, that resonates with the employees and supervisors that encourages them that when they see something, something untoward, something out of the ordinary, a co-worker acting unusually, they've got to report that. Absolutely. You know, the see something, say something, uh, again, the tone at the top. And we're seeing authentic desires from senior management to know the good, the bad, the ugly. You know, I'm a proponent, Dr. Ron, of centers of excellence. And I uh, rolled this out recently in uh, one of my um, assignments and um, consultations in regards to developing a forum for employees to come forward and to bring out ideas on what is working within a department, what's not working, what looks uh, where we need to pay more attention to detail, what's unclear to them. Because when we give employees that opportunity to voice their opinion, and everybody's got an opinion, there's, there's no doubt about that. Sometimes our time is a bit limited, but when in doubt, let's ask our employees. So I have found this to be so, so meaningful during my one-on-one -on -one employee meetings that I mentioned earlier in the other segment. Even if you're talking to any age, a millennial, an older person, it doesn't matter. People want to express themselves or they need the opportunity to express themselves and provide information. So rewarding i'm sorry dr ron you have a point no i was just going to say you know what i think yeah. part of what you're referring to is you know when we are outside of the workplace we are all interested and we talk about quality of life okay that's what it's about right. you know quality of life mm -hmm. but people need to remember that there is also a quality of work in other words a quality right. of the workplace okay when you're outside of work you want that quality of life, but actually the quality of work at the workplace is part of the overall scheme of the quality of life. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, it goes hand in hand. And as I mentioned earlier, when we come to work, we may take our personal lives to work, but also we take our work lives home. And you can talk to my wife about that because she said, Mark, what happened? What are you doing today? You're, you're so busy when I bring the work home. Um, you know, but we need to work uh, a little bit smarter and not harder. I, I want to say that. Uh, but, but the key here is absolutely it affects us. And the reward aspect of the tone at the top, the listeners up there, the board of directors saying, tell us what is going on and let's reward ideas that, that will bring forward and, and it will promote good attitude, strong relationships, saving money, 
solving uh, solutions to problems within vendors or customers, those types of things. Let's continue to reward them, especially when there's a potential difference that I see, hey, John doesn't look good today, and I'm gonna go to my supervisor and say, you know, I just noticed something, he keeps talking to himself, or whatever the case might be. I don't know, we're not clinicians, but when we see something different, it needs to come out forward and and be reported. Well, you know what, let me do a little uh, tinkering with with the whole issue here, and and I'm gonna ask you to be constructively critical. What do you think is going wrong with leaders and leadership training. So let me let me separate it because it's actually two questions, but I want to keep it pretty simple right. for our listeners. Number one, right. what do you see that leaders are doing wrong that they need to be doing? That's the first part of the question. And the second part of the question mm-hmm. is, what does leadership training need to have that it doesn't currently have in the various leadership training models that we're sending our leaders and supervisors to? You know, I think I can answer that in one brief sentence. Finding the root cause of negative attitude and losses and bad things happening in the workplace. Assessment. Leadership needs to assess. It's a constant audit is what it comes out to be. When we do an investigation, whether it's a murder or burglary, an armed robbery, it's a project it, from A to Z. Uh, we go forward and do our certain steps the same way leaders within organizations have to also perform to understand and get that information, that raw material, so it can be processed and then evaluated and going forward to use those statistics to understand what are we missing here? Something's wrong. Uh, Why is there a problematic behavior over this? Uh, That's what leadership is currently lacking, in my humble opinion. Well, Mark, what do you think the primary cause of worker dissatisfaction and low morale is? You know, for me, uh, it's a lack of leadership. And what I'm off to say is people don't leave bad jobs they leave bad leaders right. <laughs> i mean i just want to hear they sure what, do what, yeah what do you think the primary yeah. cause of, of disgruntled employees are you know when an employee and i'll say this in my experience over the last 20 plus years of leading investigative units within large financial institutions i have found that employees from every business function and our lines of businesses want to do the right thing and 99%, in my opinion, come to work each day wanting to make that difference to serve the customers and follow that, that code of values, the core values within their organization. And when they make a recommendation or they have something that's gone on where they don't hear any further response, the lack of transparency, when they hear crickets, that's a problem. You know, when someone has given me a, a side tip on an issue for an internal fraud investigation, for example, of course we can't talk about all the aspects of our investigation. We can't go from A to Z and say, this is what happened, that's what this person said. No, we can give them a very kind of anonymous type uh, conclusion in regards to what we found out. And just to 
absolutely exclaim and, and proclaim to that person that without their tip, we wouldn't have been anywhere near to success as we are today. I know there's a lot of confidentiality that has to take place. We don't want uh, to have to have the press going through each nook and cranny and legal our legal departments you know, working you know, 18 hours a day. But I'll submit to you this. If we get out of this politicization of dealing with issues, worrying about what you know the internet's going to say next, and do the right thing, I think we're really going to come really much to value and be very successful in our organizations and our people who we have put so much time and energy in will come to bat for us. And I've seen that time and time again. Well, I think that's fantastic. I I'm really have enjoyed this discussion with you today in regards to work-based violence and, and, and some of the recommendations and insights and observations you have. Mark, I think some of the people in our audience and our team members would like to know a little bit about Mark Kasek. So let's hear a little bit about you. Well, I like walks on the beach. Um, I'm a mighty Aries. No, I'm sorry. Wrong, <laughs> wrong profile. Sorry. No, I head up uh, MGK Forensic Consultants and Investigations. And uh, investigations.mgk at gmail.com is the way to get a hold of me. Uh, I handle all kinds of forensic investigations and assessments, whether it might be internal fraud corporate espionage investigations, complex or even simple and easy. And there's no such thing as we used to say, there's no such thing as a routine traffic stop. There's no such thing as a routine third-party forensic fraud investigation either. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist, and one of my forensic investigation team members, Mark Kasich on America 